You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Are you fielding a lot of questions from patients and families about the vaccines? Are you starting to think about how best to support getting some people to get their second dose? Are you reaching out to patients who may be more hesitant or have had a harder time accessing vaccine these days? Yeah, me too. This is Primary Care in a Pandemic. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm a medical anthropologist working at the University of British Columbia's Department of Family Practice. And I'm Morgan, a family doctor working in the inner city, and I'm faculty in the Department of Family Practice. We're both part of the Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or the ISU. As we get further along into the rollout of vaccine across the country, thinking about vaccine hesitancy and what we can do about it is becoming more important. And in BC, Sarah, we're doing really well in terms of our rates of immunizations. I checked yesterday and we hit 4.1 million doses administered as of June 15th. Which is awesome. And that's only the first dose. Yeah, but that means like more than 75% first dose across the province. True, but one of the things we know is that uptake's not uniform. So we have communities with less than 60% and even less than 50% first dose. And BC is way better than many provinces and much of the rest of the world right now. So we're still kind of sitting in this gray zone. Is there good news right now? Yeah, I guess there is. So in the last few weeks, we're now vaccinating 12 to 18-year-olds, which is amazing. Um, We're starting more and more second doses. Now I think we have more second doses going into arms than first doses. And as of yesterday, we're moving into the next phase of reopening, which means that we can have parties outside of up to 50 people for the weekend of my children's birthday parties. So that is huge news. (laughs) And we're all going to start to understand what that means for us a little bit. I think also more good news is that vaccine supply is becoming less and less of a a problem, at least in Canada. And not to always be the uh, negative Nelly here, but while it's true in Canada, it's not true globally. So we have to keep thinking about that as well, right? Yeah, that's true. And I I think there's hope that the supply is going to reach more globally now. And I guess, you know, what that really does mean is that those who are keen, kind of the the low-hanging fruit, um, have now been vaccinated. And there's still lots of people left to be vaccinated in Canada and even more so globally. Yeah. And that brings us to our challenge today. We're going to come back today and, and spend some time revisiting vaccine hesitancy. And yes, we're doing really well in British Columbia and in some places where even, you know, over 80% first dose. But people are still not getting vaccinated and people are hesitant to do so. Those who haven't lined up and, and asked and signed up already, or they've got reasons why, despite what I would think is overwhelming evidence for the vast majority of people of benefit of having a vaccine. And I think that these, these different reasons for hesitancy are, are valid reasons and important to understand. And last week I spoke with Ja Hu, a physician leading the primary care vaccine rollout in Alberta and the chair of 19 to 0, which is kind of a broad-based coalition of hundreds of organizations from you know, public health, healthcare, academia, also civil society more broadly. So the goal of 19 to 0 is really to combat hesitancy in all of these different uh, venues and to help in COVID as much as possible. And really what Ja did is he, he laid out kind of three core reasons that he sees for hesitancy. The first one is trust. One is what you might consider sort of like a true hesitancy, which is primarily driven by lack of trust. And so like trust really probably is the single biggest determinant of whether or not people want to get vaccinated. And Jaw distinguishes this from relative concerns. The other is something we call concern. And that just really how worried you are about COVID itself. 
how worried you were about getting COVID, getting ill with COVID, with those around you getting COVID. And finally, he talks about access. And then the last piece is around sort of access, convenience. And, you know, I, I think that I would decompose into like just geographic access. You know, early on, I think it just wasn't available a lot of places, but it's also just one's ability to take the time to get a vaccine, take the time to deal with the side effects of the vaccine, take the time to go see the doctor talk about the vaccine if they have any questions. Sarah, I, I really like how he breaks this down. It's tangible as a provider and it's practical to think about it in our practices and also in our communities that we can sort of look at these three different levels and try to address different things to help with hesitancy and concern at those levels. And you know, what these challenges of access in particular and concern and trust really highlight is the importance of equity. And we've been talking a lot in the ISU about bringing an equity kind of lens to this work. We need to be sure that we're, we're aware of the diversity of perspectives and that when we're having vaccination discussions, we're supporting patients in their decision making. So today we want to talk about a few more ideas to support having these conversations with people around the vaccine. And there's a lot of good people doing good work and it's, it's becoming increasingly available. And so now's a good time to share some of the stuff that our collaborators are doing. I want to talk about vaccine resistance, I guess, to start with. And, and how do you approach somebody at that stage? I'm making sure that I ask people regularly now, have you had your first dose yet? It is a bit of a leading question, but that will trigger then a bit of a discussion. My first patient this week, it was clear that first they had not had their dose and they didn't feel that they needed it. And so what I did is just started to open the conversation a little bit. The person said, yeah, I don't see a lot of people. I'm healthy. I don't need it. I, again, opened it a little further, Sarah. And then I realized, okay, there's a closed door there today. And so I'm not going to try to push any further. I've knocked. The door's not going to open today. So I just, I said, absolutely. I, I got him to explain a little bit more of his, his reasons. And I, and I left it there, knowing that for me and for him, the real reason he came was actually to talk about a different issue. And while unrelated in some ways, it was related to anxiety and coping and trauma. And so it may in the longer term help, but for today or for this week, it wasn't the time to really push beyond just, just knocking on the door. Well, and I think you know this because you know your patient, right? You have this relationship with them and you're able to step back from that that first discussion, I think that idea of not closing the door is so important. If, if you would have kind of gone in on the sort of full offensive with the goal of getting a person to yes, you know, that, that I think is, is where you can, you can scare people away who are already on that hesitancy side of things. And that just reframes the idea of what does success look like when we think about vaccine hesitancy and how we want to be engaging with patients. And really, it has to stay patient-centered, right? Yeah, absolutely. You got to speak with Jean. I had a chance to speak with Miles Leslie uh, at the University of Calgary. He's a patient engagement and health services researcher, doing some really interesting work in a bunch of different areas related to COVID. And his team is creating kind of a vaccine hesitancy guide, right, to help yeah. um, healthcare providers really have sort of these right kind of conversations. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see how it's been developing. And it's on the verge of going live. And we'll have a link in the description for how, where you can get it. His guide is based on a series of interviews with a, a diverse group of clinicians working in primary care and outside of primary care to understand very tangibly how you can approach different types of hesitancy. And I think he's, he's highlighted really well that this is not a how, how do you get the patient to say yes, but it's about moving the ongoing conversation forward. If you seek first to understand and then move forward, not with the goal of closing the deal, but rather with the goal of getting to contemplation. And that might just apply to you as much as it applies to the patient. 
So getting people to think about the pros and cons as well as yourself. Yeah, I think so. I think when we talked, he highlighted for me, it's, it's nice to refresh this. It's the contemplation. So getting somebody to contemplate the pros and cons, but also for me personally, there's understanding and contemplating that my patient's pros and cons, which are different than my own. And if I come in with only my agenda, then I'm, I'm going to not understand that. So it's actually a bi-directional contemplation. That understanding also then means accepting what's right for that person. Which might not be what's right for you. Right. Or what we think might be right for them. And with that, Miles also emphasized the value of the longitudinal relationship. And we talk a lot about this. I mean, it's central to our conversations. Many providers have this, and it doesn't have to be a years-long longitudinal relationship. But knowing that it's more than one visit, you're looking forward into the future, you want to have this conversation that's an improving conversation that also maintains the relationship. There are so many opportunities to be able to say, well, tell me more about that. I'd like to understand more about how your worldview works so that maybe we can find a way that does work for you. And maybe we can't, and that's okay too. So really it's seek first to understand, to listen, and, and to hear the other person. Yeah, and we all need to embrace our inner anthropologist, Sarah, and do more listening and observing. And it doesn't take a long time, a little bit longer than you perhaps feel comfortable as a primary care provider. But if you listen a little longer, you're gonna hear a bit more, and you're gonna then hopefully understand that next deeper part of the concern or the worry versus just the initial no. And again, Miles talks a bit about this. Then the, the conversation has a chance of getting better. The decision might be exactly the same in the end, but this conversation got better. And I think that's what we're actually aiming for. Miles makes a great point here. If we're trying to play the vaccine game uh, with somebody who's resistant or, or even hesitant, it's really, it's a zero sum game. You win by convincing them or they win by saying, you know, saying no. And really, it's usually the patient, as they can just choose not to come back and end that relationship if, you, if you know, you're too sort of pushy with them. Yeah, that's, and that's totally true. If you play that game and you push too hard, someone has to lose, right? And it doesn't, in the end, help the relationship with the patient. And, and that means, in the end, of course, you're both losing. And wasn't the, the kind of prototype, the, the first version of the guide, called the playbook? It was. And the idea was that here's an accessible playbook of things that you can try. And as they did their research and as they pulled the stories together, they changed the name for exactly this reason. It's not a zero-sum game. And instead, the focus on guiding that conversation and building that relationship. And that way, there's not this win-lose mentality. So they changed the name completely. Miles heard this over and over again. And it's just worth repeating from him. The conversation does not end when you leave the room. And that's the good thing about doing these hesitancy conversations in the family medicine context. If patients stay connected and come back, then that's the win, right? Yeah, I think so. I think then it's, like, it's a win-win if we want to stick to that metaphor a little bit. So if there's a game to play, then that's probably the right one to play. So the second idea that we wanted to talk about was a specific tool to support patients, particularly those who are, are kind of nervous and have a lot of anxiety around immunizations. And this is the, the card tool that's been developed. People can be really nervous about needles, about pain, the social anxiety of fainting in public. And, you know, last week my tenant was getting vaccinated and I got this text from her and she was in the public health immunization center and she was like, there's too many people here. Uh, I can't do this. I'm going to faint. I'm going to leave. I, I had to go twice in the last week. It's the most people I've seen in, in months, you know period, let alone in one place. So it's, it can be anxiety provoking for sure. 
Right. And and people have been so careful for so long and people who are already starting from a place of higher anxiety, that can be a really big challenge. And she sent me this message and she was like, I'm going to leave. I can't do this. And she's been very keen on the idea of, of immunization, but it was the being there physically and the challenges for her, particularly her fears were around fainting and other people seeing her be really nervous. But I messaged her quickly and was like, tell them that you're nervous. If you tell them you're nervous, I'm sure they have somewhere for you to go. But I also realized, you know, when I'd been there the week previous, there was no signs anywhere. There was lots of people Mm. to help you, but there was no instructions um, saying, if you're nervous, speak to somebody. There's other options. Yeah, that's a really good point. The thing with the big clinic, right? It is a bit of a machine and people are great, but if you don't say to ask, they won't know. I got to speak with Anna Taddeo on this, and she's a passionate pharmacist and and researcher who studies pain in children. She's developed a tool to help providers and to support patients, particularly with anxiety around immunizations. So we are looking at ways to make vaccination easier for people. So helping them to understand a little bit more about vaccination and then things that they can do to be prepared for vaccination so that they have a better experience. So we created a framework or an approach to help people with vaccinations that really kind of structures concerns or questions they might have into different areas or buckets and then gives them some ideas about how to deal with those things. So the CARD acronym, the C stands for comfort, what people need to do to plan ahead. And the example that Anna draws on a lot is the fact that there's a kind of topical analgesic that people can use if they're really nervous about pain. The A stands for asking questions, making it okay for patients to do so, and really empowering people to have that space to put questions out there. R stands for relax, so they have strategies for relaxing. You can imagine things in your head. You can do certain kinds of physical actions with your bodies. And there's less stress-induced reactions like fainting if people are more relaxed. And then the final letter in the acronym, the D, is is really about distraction, which is for post-immunization. What do you want to do when you're waiting? What's your plan? Are you going to bring a book? Are you going to plan to look around? And just having a structured way for people to approach the whole process can really then help to decrease anxiety. I went with my son and distraction was not a problem. <laughs> Actually, we had a lot of fun. We were We played different games going from each two meter separate dot on the floor. So my question to you, Sarah, is... Is this something that a patient is just aware of, or is it something that I can use in my office? Well, and this is what I think is so great about the tool they've developed. They've developed two things. One is a poster that you can put up in an office to let patients know about these steps and the structure and and how they can work through it. But they've also developed a worksheet. So an actual physical thing you can hand a patient with little spaces for them to fill out under each acronym what their concerns are and what their ideas are and what their plan is for their immunization experience. So I think the idea behind this tool is that, you know, it'd be great if providers were checking in with patients before their immunization appointments and walking them through the four steps. And it's also great for patients if they're handed the worksheet, then they can take that time to fill it in themselves. So I think really... It can be used by providers and by patients. And in our conversation, Anna really emphasized the value of flexibility that's built into CARD. And so people have different coping strategies in this. This is kind of where the the beauty of CARD lies. There is no set way that we tell people to cope or do things. They literally play their own cards. It's a very individualized game and people can use all of the cards or all of the coping strategies or interventions or they can use 
few of them. So it's really up to them. So it's really giving providers a way to operationalize patient-centered care. And finally, I think the real takeaway is that there's huge value in normalizing both the process of immunization, but also the, the fear and anxiety that people can have around, around needles. So the idea with CARD is that if you normalize it, put out the strategies and, and make it part of the process, people will be more comfortable. You're right. It helps the providers, the system, but it also helps the person if they've done the worksheet themselves. And having that plan often reduces anxiety in, in so many areas. It's a very practical simple and effective tool that can be used especially for right now, but in lots of other places as well. Exactly. And it empowers people. And had my tenant had that before going to her appointment, she wouldn't have had all that anxiety. And she had me. So she was able to ask the questions, get into a separate space and and go through with her immunization. At the end of the day, being able to ask for that help and then then to see that the, the folks at the immunization clinic responded is just fantastic. So, Sarah, the next thing we wanted to talk about today was more around community and cultural hesitancy. We've talked about what, what Miles's team has been developing around the vaccine hesitancy guide at the beginning. And in that discussion with Miles, we also talked a bit about the community-based hesitancy. So not just individual nervousness, but more systemic levels of, of hesitancy. And, you know, I think it's really important to recognize there's a lot of very good reasons for hesitancy yeah. based on historical experiences, trauma, the kind of intersectional challenges that marginalized communities or individuals can face. And then also particularly things like immunization that go in between that body barrier, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're trusting someone to put something into your body. And that means a lot of different things in for different people coming from different communities. And yeah. that on top of history, I just think we have to be really aware of, of that context. We do, and we, we can't dismiss it or gloss over it. And even though the first thing we talked about was that knocking on the door, and if there's, if there's resistance, then not pushing too hard, I think it's really important to approach this with care and listen and create that space so that people can speak and feel heard in the process. The great thing the Vaccine Hesitancy Guide is doing is it's pulling together content from family physicians and scholars across Canada to really help bring a trauma-informed approach into the conversations. I think Miles summed up the guide really well. It's here to be a supportive tool for good conversations that allow the clinician as much as the patient the space to understand and have more empathy. And, and Sarah, this is what we really want to do with all of our patients, right? Especially those who have and are experiencing systemic racism or who have complex trauma. We need to be patient-centered. We need to be understanding, creating that cultural safety and personal safety for people to then be able to engage in their care how they want to. Exactly. And before we wrap up today, Morgan, I wanted to remind you we're halfway through our flourishing.app project that we started when we were talking about languishing and, and then flourishing in COVID. That's right. I've been doing my two, Sarah. So what I chose, uh, if just to remind you, I did the gratitude and the character strengths. And the first one, gratitude, is it's a short journaling activity three times a week, just to think of what are you grateful for? And, and it's, it's really interesting. For me, it's been very simple things that I've been grateful for. It's been family, it's been friends, and uh, that's been the theme. The character strengths, I have to say, it's a once a week reflection. And I sort of go, oh, creativity, how have I used creativity? 
What I think would be more helpful for me, and I might do this in the next couple of weeks, is is try to then add a couple of sentences at the end about how I might choose to use them next week. How about you? How's it been going for you? So I've I've also done pretty well, although I did miss one week. My two that I chose were the best possible self activity and then a, a job crafting. And, you know, I've been really surprised by the best possible self because I thought it was totally cheesy. Um, you're supposed to like, sit down and like just free write about envisioning yourself in the future in the place that you want to be. And it's the same thing every week. But I've actually really been enjoying that. It's kind of fun. And every week I think of something different that I want to include in my best possible future. So I'm, I'm, I am really looking forward to looking back over those over time. And, and that's certainly been something that, like, you know, when I finish that, I feel great. It's like the five whys a little bit, right? Where you ask the question again and you get a little bit of a deeper answer. Yeah. So that one surprised me. The job crafting one, I have to say, it's thinking about challenges and then what you're going to do to address them. And I'm really good about thinking about what I'm going to do to address uh, challenges and structure my work and what I want that to look like. I'm not so good at actually doing them. So now I have this like long list of things that I know in the back of my head I should be implementing and I haven't quite got there yet. So that for me has been a little bit, doesn't, hasn't made me feel quite so much like I'm moving into the flourishing space, but I feel like there's so much potential. So well, that's good. Yeah. So is it helping? I, I think so. And I think the, the one takeaway for me is that I'm surprised that these kind of things are helping. Yeah, I know. Uh, at the beginning, we talked about like, should we do this? Should we do it publicly? Yeah, let's do it publicly. I think I've been surprised more by the gratitude just taking the, the time, I mean, gratitude is a wonderful thing in that sense of you taking even a few minutes to just sort of consciously park everything else and just think about what were three good things. You know, that's, that's a nice habit to have. And it just shifts me a little bit, especially on a tough day. So th that wraps up this episode of Primary Care in a Pandemic. We're addressing a common theme, it seems, around vaccines. And hopefully these tools that we talked about today and the ideas that have come up are helpful and helpful in supporting patients make their right decisions about the vaccine. And so the, the takeaways, take the time to engage people, ask them where they're at. And start the conversation and assess readiness and identify concerns early on so that you can then move forward. And moving forward means building on that relationship. So uh, Miles at one point said, run away to talk another day. And that's absolutely the right way to go if you need to. Great. Well, thanks so much. And until next time. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 